Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. F is for five years, the song and the documentary. Absolutely. So five years, the song recorded November 1971 at Trident Studios in London, first premiered on uh, BBC Radio's Sound of the 70s in February 72, and then a few days later... Bowie plays it on the old grey whistle test on TV. So this is still a full five months before the Ziggy album comes out. Yeah, that was a big moment. I mean, I, I didn't see the old grey whistle test first time round, no. uh, naturally. Uh, but it was performed on all the Ziggy shows, you know, in 72 and 73. And it was also uh, resurrected for Station to Station and the stage tours. Mm. I mean, a, a massive tune for Bowie. Absolutely. And of course, supposedly, Bowie was going to play it at Live Aid in 1985, but he decided to drop it voluntarily in favour of showing the BBC film about the uh, Ethiopia famine instead. Which is a, a cool thing to do. Yeah. So, by 1972, people wonder what Five Years is all about. So, Bowie tells a journalist in Cleveland that he said he just chose it because it was I had a bad afternoon, he said. But the real story kind of came out later, didn't it? Where... Bowie sort of disclosed, he had this dream where his dad, his dad had passed away a few years earlier. His dad had come to him and said, look, son, whatever you do, I don't want you to fly again. It's just not a good idea. So he had this premonition of a dream uh, and it sort of stuck with him. And then that was where five years came from. Uh, Bowie sort of played it live for the Dinah Shaw show in 1976 and started talking about it. Uh, And Dinah Shaw says, well, David told me, interestingly enough, just as he walked over to the bandstand, this is a song that was a direct result of a dream he had. Now, it depends what came first, the chicken or the egg here, doesn't it? Because So he's had this dream that his dad's come to him and told him not to fly. Mm. Um, but you, so, and he didn't fly. Now, this was, this was a big part of Bowie's career, and yeah. it didn't hold him back, but it must have been an inconvenience because it would take him a week to get to New York and the band, mm. you know, seven or eight hours or whatever. Um, but, uh, and he would famously go on boats and trains. You just mentioned um, the uh, train up to Aberdeen, yeah. you know, eating his Sunday roast with Mick Ronson. Mm. If he was already had this intrinsic fear of flying, because he wasn't famous when, it, when he wrote it. I mean, yeah. he was getting there for him, and he'd been across to America and stuff, but mm. you just wonder if in the back of his mind he already had this thing growing inside him this kind of a this uh, anxious side of him yeah. about flying and then that's playing on his mind and then it's his dad who comes to him who delivers a message you mm. know uh, but he did he, I mean he backed off from flying as we say uh, for, for a long time yeah, he, he did he must have got over it because I mean you couldn't quite you couldn't really do what he did following from particularly 1983 you know if you look at, if no. you look at the serious moonlight yeah. tour and then living in New York and all that you, well, yeah, you'd, you'd have to think he was flying quite a lot yeah there's no other way to deal with it it's interesting is it? As you say, it's a good theory, that, because also you, you've got to remember the years are ticking on. There's a horrible endgame going on here, you know, if I, if I believe the prophecy in the first place. Well, that, that's the, uh, the the programme that was on recently, which was called Hard Sun, which mm. was uh, apparently the, the guy who wrote it, he heard Davy Bowie's Five Years and thought, this is a great idea for a programme. It's a great premise. And so that's what it was all about. So uh, the, I won't spoil it in case anybody wants to watch it, but mm. yeah, the, the premise being that there is just five years and it's all of the things that, that evolved from that thought process yeah. with, with people. I've only got five years left. What do I do in that five years? Right. Okay. What can I get away with mm. in those five years? I mean, Bowie also did say at one point that his half-brother Terry was a bit of an influence on the gestation of this tune. He said, my records were selling at the time and I was being a man in demand. I thought of my brother and I wrote five years. Uh, I mean, for me, you know, it's it's such a key song for me. For the first 
proper Bowie album I bought and got into that wasn't, you know, wasn't Changes One was Ziggy. I didn't know anything about it. I was just intrigued by the cover. And of course, it's a strange song to start an album with. You'd think the real sort of kick-ass rock and roll thing, none of that. It's such a sort of gentle thing that leads you into the rest of the record, doesn't it? And it's led in by that wonderful drum beat, sort of quasi-military thing by uh, Woody Wood Mansey. And suddenly you're into this strange world and the lyrics seem to come from nowhere and you're wondering what it's all about. You would imagine the RCA thinking, this isn't an opener. Mm. You know, like you say, you just want a hand grenade going off for yeah. the first tune and drawing everybody in. And you would think that maybe a song like that would be the, the, the closing tune on side one, maybe, but not the introduction, which, again, it was a brilliant move. It was a brilliant, brilliant move. We move on to five years of documentary here, which uh, was the title of a BBC Two documentary. And if anybody hasn't seen it, I urge you to immediately, because it's such a wonderful piece of work. It's a, it's a great piece of work. I watched it for the first time since David Bowie passed uh, away, and uh, just recently, because I, could, I couldn't bring myself to watch it. I really, I honestly couldn't. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it is, the, the footage, I remember watching it first time around, thinking, I've not seen that before. And mm. you know you know what it's like, you're, you're mad on Bowie. You think you've seen pretty much everything, but there was some really great stuff in there. You, oh. you have to take your hat off to the, the production people, well, and the director. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just a synopsis, it's really kind of focusing on five key years in Bowie's career, but really it's just an excuse to hang these great phases of his life on, his creative life on it. So you just get everything. And of course, the wonderful thing is all his collaborators his extant yeah, collaborators are there they're just paying tribute and it's brilliantly directed and seeing together so you get this flow of a story without Bowie being directly involved yeah I mean uh, famously Rick Wakeman's on there mm. and uh, do you know I, I seem to remember that Rick Wakeman came on the afternoon show with Mark Ratcliffe yeah. on Radio 1 and he, and, and he just played a couple of bars of uh, changes I think oh. he probably would have been um, but uh, yeah he, he's explaining the chord structure of life on Mars and he's explaining how yeah mm. and he's saying yeah that, that all makes sense thus far and then Bowie throws in this curveball chord which you're not expecting and so he's thinking right okay yeah I can deal with that and then again, there's another different curveball chord that he throws in there. Yeah. And and Rick Wakeman, who is an amazing musician, mm. even he's like, "Whoa, this is this is something else." And only Davy Bowie could do that. Uh, and for Davy Bowie, who, as we've mentioned, isn't a, uh, isn't an incredible mu- or wasn't a incredible musician, he is is what was going on in his mind. He had to get other people in there to to uh, express it for yeah. him. He even wanted to get before Rick Wakeman, uh, Dudley Moore, didn't he, yeah. to play piano on on Life on Mars. And Hunky Dory. Yeah. Uh, but he said it's a piano player's joy. In fact, I must go home and learn it. <laughs> Absolutely. You've got Trevor Boulder on there, a Bowie's bassist from the Spiders, talking about how Bowie's just great at stealing, you know, pinching stuff here and there, you know, stuff from Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. And then you've got the real characters in there. It's great to see Eno talking about Bowie, which he doesn't often do. Robert Fripp, of course, and Dennis Davis, uh, the drummer, who's just a joy, isn't he, on that? Dennis Davis is great. You can tell that he really it, it just couldn't work out Eno. No. And really, probably, as as a musician, really couldn't get to grips with the anti-musician Stan Savino. So all of the curveballs again that he was throwing in, yeah. he's like, what, what the hell's he doing? Yeah. Why, why are we doing this? Why are we following these daft cards? Or you know, yeah. And there's a great bit in there as well where Robert Fripp talks, just deadpans the line from Fashion. We, you know, just we are the Goon Squad. We're coming to town. Beep beep. As simple as that. And Carlos Alomar is a great quote where he, you've got to remember Alomar meets Bowie, you know, seventy four. 
and he's not in the best shape. He's not looking after himself. He's in a bit of a state. He's looking so pale and emaciated. And uh, Carlos Alomar said, talking about meeting him for the first time, he says, this was the whitest man I'd ever seen in my life. And Carlos Alomar comes across as the sweetest man ever. He does, definitely. And his guitar playing is just a, a joy to behold as well. Yeah, absolutely. It says later, doesn't he, in Serious Moonlight, when it's suddenly starting to go well for Bowie, he said, this was, he was very happy, David. He said, I just found it all a little bit odd. Right. <laughs> you get an idea of what it was like before that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, the director was a guy called Francis Waitley, who'd made a short film with Bowie in the 90s, so I think he'd gained his trust. Uh, and he said, one of the things I really want to do is take away what the industry calls the sort of voice of God commentary, instead let the people who are there do the talking, including, you know, snippets of Bowie himself, which has worked a treat. Yeah, and he said he's a massive fan of Bowie. Yeah. And so he, he said he'd been looking at all of these names. This is a great thing, you know. I mean, mm. I've been in the same situation. You, you, all these names that have been on these Bowie albums for years and years, and they've just been names to him, or people that he would see in the background behind Bowie. And here he was in a room interviewing them, and he yeah. was pinching himself. And that's probably why the documentary is so great, because he means it, because he loved Bowie, and he loved what he did. The H to Z of David Bowie, with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. F is for Friars in Aylesbury. One of those venues that is just so linked to David Bowie's mm. career, isn't it? And it's one of, those, one of those venues that I would see when I was reading The Enemy throughout from 1972 or whatever. You would always see Friars Aylesbury coming up and it just sounded like it was always a real cool place. And it probably was. So uh, the Friars Club, Borough Assembly Hall, Aylesbury, Buckinghamshire. So it opened in 1969, but it closed down twice, actually, once in 1970 for about nine months. But then again in 1984 for a measly 25 years. Ooh. Did reopen, though? in June 2009 to tie in with its 40th anniversary. Initially, the idea for it was started from uh, a local school teacher called Robin Pike, and he'd suggested to a uh, music band manager who lived locally called David Stops, who he'd bumped into when he was managing a band called Smoky Rice. Smoky now, Rice, that's a good name. Mm, he did say, look, Aylesbury needs a music uh, place, you know, it needs a venue where bands can play. Stops, initially reluctant, he wanted to find somewhere in High Wycombe. Uh, in the end, they found some premises on uh, Walton Street, which was an ex-servicemen's club, also known as the New Friaridge Hall in yeah, Aylesbury. So the first gig was the 2nd of June 1969 and featured blues guitarist Mike Cooper and a progressive rock group called Mandrake Paddle Steamer. Not the best name either. Again, I love it. Uh, but the next week, you know, recognisable names there. The Pretty Things played there. Free, King Crimson, Egg de Broughton Band, Genesis, Hawkwind. I mean, it was it was a go-to place, wasn't it, on the circuit? It was, definitely. So this whole phase came to a uh, Close when the committee that oversaw the servicemen's club refused to give them, uh, you know, license to continue doing gigs after August 1970 due to complaints, noise complaints from local residents, which isn't new, isn't it, when it comes to venues? No, and it's still, it's still like these days, it's all over the place. Venues being closed down because of the gentrification of the uh, the areas around it, yeah. and flats being built there, and so you know, yeah, you buy a flat above a club. Hmm. And then you kept awake at night because your flat's above a club. Oh, well, get don't used buy to it. a flat above a club anyway. That's we, the message, let, isn't it? Do it? So they had already tried the Borough Assembly Hall for a couple of bigger gigs in '69 from Fat Mattress and Third Ear Band, and so the decision was taken to restart Friars at the uh, Market Square, which is a really iconic place. This is where the story really starts, isn't it? Yeah. The first gig, I'm going to say, so 17th of April 1971, a sellout. So the success from the start, the Groundhogs and the local act John Otway supporting. So Bowie's first show there was billed as the only current British appearance of David Bowie and he played the first gig with the Spiders at Friars on the 25th of September 1971. So Mick Ronson and Woody Woodmans who were already in the fold, already been working with Bowie uh, but it was Trevor Boulder's first gig. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Ronson plays bass and electric guitar on the solo tunes, while six tracks were the full band. So there are snippets of the set list here. Space Oddity was done, obviously you had to do that at that point in time, but it's doing stuff like Changes and Queen Bitch, Round and Round, which is a Chuck Berry tune, and Waiting for the Man, which was a, you know, a staple of his live show for many years, Oh You Pretty Things and The Supermen. And uh, in the audience was Pete Frame. Now, if you don't know who Pete Frame is, he's an absolutely brilliant guy. Hello, Pete. And he worked for Zigzag, but he perhaps most famously did the Rock Family Trees. Yeah. Now, these these appeared in the in in the music papers. Probably the was it the Enemy, whatever it was. They they were great. You always enjoyed looking at them. And also, eventually, they were turned into TV programs. Yeah, which were which were so great. And I think uh, Pete might live in in Scotland now. Oh, does he? Yeah. Right, okay. uh, but you can buy the books as well. I've got them and uh, yeah he, he he formed a new kind of a he formed a new way of looking at the yeah. bands you know you could just sit there and oh, we all know what a family tree is but nobody had done it with all of the bands and if you think about it it's a gift even for bands like maybe Deep Purple or whatever you've got all these different ridiculous offshoots going all the way mm. back to 1965 yeah. or whatever it's a brilliant brilliant idea so at that first show so you got Pete Frame in the crowd also Roger Taylor was there from Queen Bowie was supposed to be sharing the billy with America they were managed by the DJ Jeff Deck is a mate of Bowie's at the time, but they pulled out, unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> so it says it. I know we disagree on this, don't we, Bob? I hope no, no name is the most depressing song ever. You hate that song. I don't mind it at all. Right, OK. But uh, Woody Woodman's, he came up with a quote. He said, the Aylesbury Friars Club gig sticks in my mind of one of Bowie and the Spiders' favourite shows. I remember the first time we played, we'd spent weeks working out the show, and it was the first airing of a Bowie and Spiders concert that we then took around the world. Yeah, so David Stops, the uh, manager, promoter, said he remembers that night really vividly. Not only did Bowie go down a storm, he gave us a world debut of Hunky Dory, which at that time hadn't even been released. And after the gig in the dressing room, he said to Woody, uh, Mick Ronson, Trevor Boulder, that was great tonight. Let's form a band. Let's go out and do it properly. Yeah, so they went back in the January of 1972, and that was historic because that was a full un- unveiling of the Ziggy with mm. the regalia and all that kind of stuff, and the band were paid £110. Yeah, Roger Taylor was in the crowd. This time, again, he brought uh, Freddie Mercury with him. He was intrigued by Bowie, and they, there's a story about them travelling to the gig in this really clapped-out old Mini Cooper, which might have belonged to Freddie Mercury, and getting lost and going round roundabouts the wrong way and just spending hours to get there. But apparently it was all worth it because they were just knocked out by the whole theatrics that they saw. Right, and, and Bowie presumably knew Freddie Mercury a little bit at this point in time because didn't he go and buy stuff from his stall on the Portobello ah, market? Yeah. Isn't yeah, that the story? Did. Yeah, okay. Research, Mark. All right, so we skip forward to the third time, 15th of July, 1972. It's the finale of the first Ziggy tour uh, of uh, the UK, at which point, you know, all this promotion is going on. Bowie's throwing out promotional posters into the crowd at the end. He'd seen Alice Cooper doing it a year before. So that's a great idea. Right. Starman's riding high in the charts. It was at number 20 at that time. And initially, this is a great insight into Bowie's mindset here. So he wanted to relay the gig for people who couldn't get in there on a giant screen in the market square outside. So already, you know, he's having these ideas, these visions. How can I reach more people? How can I sort of harness technology? But of course, the technology wasn't there to use at that time. And it would have been a landmark moment. I mean, not only for Bowie being on top of the pops, but also, I mean, to do something like that, it, it would have been a first, wouldn't it? You know, mm. you, nobody else would have considered doing no. anything quite so outlandish. But as you say, they probably didn't ultimately have the money to, to pull it all in. I mean, yeah, just a great idea, it but it didn't come to fruition. Brilliant idea. Also, at this time, you've got the uh, the weight of the record company. Suddenly, Bowie is a hit. You know, he's in the charts. So you've got all, they flew uh, various members of the American music press over, especially just to see this show. Uh, and Bowie had the full works. He even had a, a pink Rolls Royce to take into the gig. 
Melody Maker ran a headline, a star is born, it's all going on. I love the fact that when the gig was over and Bowie had thrown out his posters, got back into his Rolls Royce and he drove to King's Cross Cinema where Iggy and the Stooges were making their famous... UK debut. Yeah, well, that, that was uh, the, the cover of which Raw Power mm. was taken that particular night, yeah. and and it was either the previous night or the following night that Lou Reed had played there, and the cover shot, both taken by Mick Rock, ended up on the cover of uh, Transformer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and both of those gigs were promoted by Di Davis, who was part of the main man team, mm. and uh, we hope at some point to talk to Di Davis uh, within all of these podcasts. We'll yeah. see how we go with that. Okay, wonderful. We should also mention that Bowie mentions Aylesbury Market Square in the first line of five years, as discussed pushing through the market square, so many mothers sighing. And, of course, he goes back in 1977. He's back, isn't he, with, with Iggy, but playing keyboards at one side of the stage. I know you saw that tour in Manchester, and everybody would be rushed to the side where Bowie was, so you'd have this sort of strange kind of shape in the crowd where this mass of people trying to get the best glimpse of Bowie. Well, the, the, the quote there is that, yeah, there, there was just a mountain of people to the right of the stage, mm. you know, and, it, yeah, I'm sure it was the same on every show that Iggy did on that tour, but, I mean, I, I doubt he was that bothered, really. I mean, it was uh, that was a bus tour that yeah. so many people wanted to go to it. He obviously just sold out and they sold a lot more tickets than Iggy would have done on his own, even though he'd had, you know, the, the big albums, uh, yeah. The Idiot and Lust for Life. Yeah, of course. So earlier that day, uh, the promoter David Sopp was just walking through the Market Square, happened to see somebody he recognised coming towards him wearing uh, a lovely white silk scarf. Of course, it was Bowie. And he greeted Stops saying, like, what's a clean-cut kid like you still doing in a small town like this? So obviously he remembers him. And of course, we fast forward to October 2016, uh, the David Stops decide to start a Kickstarter campaign, put a statue of Bowie in the Market Square in Aylesbury. Uh, it will be at the exact place where the meeting with Bowie took place. The campaign raised over £115,000, which is just incredible and a great tribute to Bowie. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. F is for Sarinda Fox. OK, we think it's Sarinda, don't we? We do, Might yes. be Sarinda, yeah. we're not 100% sure. But uh, born Kathleen Victoria Hezekian. Uh, 1952 in Santa Monica. She grew up as an army brat. Now, before anybody gets the green ink out and the uh, the, the paper, it's Wikipedia's word, not mine, OK? But she lived in Texas briefly and then moved to New York City. She got a job as an assistant to Greta Garbo. Wow. Uh, I mean... How do you do that? And uh, Do you know what? I mean, if ever there was a book to be written, it would be somebody being the assistant to Greta Garbo. Mm. How crazy would that yeah, be? Yeah, just wonderful. So while she's there in New York, she's hanging out at Maxi. Kansas City and gets to know Andy Warhol and his crowd and she was offered a role in uh, Warhol's Pork wasn't she? (laughs) (laughs) Please do it please do it It's my gag mate (laughs) Yeah she did uh, while she was in Pork she got the chop Okay, now we're not going to go into comedy at this point in time don't worry I just love that though But she dyed her hair peroxide blonde didn't she and the Mm. co-stars it was all those people that Lou Reed would mention in his Mm. his song so the Andy Warhol stars he got Candy Darling and Jackie Curtis who was on the back of uh, Transformer as well I think I'm right in saying and Wayne County, Jane County. Yeah, so she meets Bowie in 1972 at the Mercer Arts Centre which is with her boyfriend at the time. He's David Johansson from New York Dolls. But David liked her, didn't he? So they had a bit of a... A fling, didn't they, Mark? They did, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, she, and she, uh, well, he liked her that much. He bought the company. No, that's not right. <laughs> he liked her that much. He invited her over to uh, San Francisco, didn't he? Because he was doing a video shoot for the Gene Genie, famously inside and outside the Mars Hotel. Uh, so that was October 1972. And yeah. She flew from New York, specially for it. That's right. At this point in time, she's a receptionist at Mainman's New York office. The affair with Bowie kind of fizzled out after mm. a while. By 1977, she'd married David. Johansson, year later, got divorced. 
then married Steve Tyler of Aerosmith, had a daughter, Mia. Uh, that relationship soured as well. Sadly, she died at age 50 of a brain tumour in 2003. And Bowie donated an acoustic guitar to be auctioned off to help for her medical bills, didn't I he? I think a few musicians and stars, uh, yeah, just put stuff into an yeah. auction, trying to raise money for her, yeah. And uh, another Bowie connection, as if you need any more. Watch that man, the line, uh, well, no one took their eyes off Lorraine. She shimmied and she strolled like a Chicago mall. Her feathers looked better and better. That was uh, Surrender Fox. That was Lorraine. That's who he was. And apparently he wrote that. He was inspired by watching uh, her and Angie Bowie having a dance at an after-show party in New York uh, at Carnegie Hall, September 1972. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. F is for Robert Fripp. So Robert Fripp, born the 16th of May 1946, Wimborne uh, in Dorset. His dad was an estate agent. His mum, I'm not sure... Uh, aged 11, his parents bought him a guitar. Almost immediately, he says, I knew that this guitar was going to be my life. Yeah, so he gets guitar lessons from two people, Kathleen uh, Cartel and Don Strike. Aged 11, he's learnt rock guitar, he's got it all nailed. Then he's into trad jazz by the age of 13. And by 15, he's learning modern jazz. So he's a talented chap here. By the age of 15, I'd bought a guitar and a tiny little amp and I could just about play the riff, badly, of Sunshine of Your Love, which, oh. lest we forget, is ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 ding. More than I could do, Mark. Well, you know. Uh, but he was influenced by Charlie Parker and Charlie Mingus. So the first band that he was in, 1961, The Ravens, mm. which included, within its ranks, Gordon Haskell, who went on to play with Le Fleur de Lis and also, briefly, with King Crimson, with Robert Fripp. Yeah, so within the year, by 62, The Ravens have split and Fripp concentrated on his O-levels very sensibly, the idea being he was going to go on to become a negotiator at his dad's estate agency firm. And, of course, you know, eventually he'd be running the family business... Uh, having been through university. So it's a very sensible career path being plotted here. It was all mapped out for him, wasn't it? But he's 1964, age 17, he forgets all of that and decides to become a professional musician. So mm. naturally he plays in a jazz band, the Douglas Ward Trio, and he forms his own rock and roll band as well. This is interesting. The League of Gentlemen, ah. which uh, is famously a name that he would use once again with uh, lots of other amazing musicians much further down the line. But he wasn't entirely reckless about it, was he? Because no. He didn't burn all his bridges because no. he did enrol in a Bournemouth college because uh, he wanted the career to fall back on and uh, economic history yeah. and I love this it's, it's at this actual place that he meets Richard Palmer James who went on to form Supertramp yeah. John Wetton who was in Roxy Music and King Crimson and Greg Lake from well King Crimson and ELP so it, it's a very um, mannered kind yeah. of uh, scenario isn't it because these aren't he's not meeting people who go on to be in punk bands no. they're all proggers and you know yeah. and, and great musicians. Yeah, all from the world of, of academia, aren't they? So 1968, he forms Giles, Giles and Fripp. 1969, of course, King Crimson. And by September 72, he's invited to play on uh, Brian Eno's No Pussyfoot Him because he'd met him at, uh, they'd shared the same management company as Roxy Music and it was the start of a great friendship, wasn't it? And Brian Ferry actually uh, did audition to join King Crimson, didn't he? He did. Robert Fripp told me once he's one of only two people to see Brian Ferry audition as the singer and he sang, one of the songs he sang was uh, Schizoid Man. Wow. Yeah, which oh, if there's a, there probably is a tape somewhere, but nobody's showing it. Uh, I doubt we ever will, really, you know. Um, but uh, so uh, David Bowie was 
a, a big fan, wasn't he? So, he, like, we're looking at 1973, mm. and, and Robert Fripp is already working with Brian Eno. So, uh, and we have discussed before, uh, no pussyfooting, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Of course, we've got to mention, Bowie was a fan of that record. Also, so was Iggy. Iggy could sing all the guitar parts of that, apparently. He really? was so besotted with that. Yeah, <laughs> right, absolutely. Okay. Uh, Fripp did say, you know, the method he chose when he was working with Eno. So, it was also informal. When they recorded, no, well, the first side of no pussyfooting, he just thought he was going around to Eno's flat just for a social evening. But he took his guitar and his pedal board along and he said, hang on a minute, let me finish. No, but I mean, he, he just thought it was a social evening, but he took along his guitar and pedal board. Is that, would, he, would he do that normally? That... Possibly. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But, yeah, you go around to a musician's house, although he knows that he wasn't a musician. So he said, I started playing for about 18 minutes. He said, and then we stopped. Brian wound the tape back and I played over the top. And then he said, after 45 minutes, you have no pussyfooting. Side yeah. one, that's how it worked. The second time he said he went back for tea one afternoon and in the front room, the two Revoxes were setting up, recording what became discreet music. This is 75. Mm. We went into the kitchen, had tea and biscuits while discreet music was being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, it, before that, of course, the Brian Eno, kind of as we know him, the glam side of Brian Eno. Mm. So here come the warm jets, which features Robert Fripp. Yeah. And, and his performance on Babies on Fire is legendary. Oh. Uh, so it, if you look at Babies on Fire and you look at the other side of the coin of the work that he'd done with Brian Eno and you've got both of the brilliant talents of Robert Fripp that Davy Bowie really wanted to be able yeah. to tap into because he, he he orchestrated parts of Davy Bowie's records using both of those skills, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and of course, you know, the other records that Fripp made with the Evening Star and Another Green World in 75 and then... Eno is working with the German band Cluster by June 77. And of course, June 77, also at Bowie's invitation, Eno joins him to record his next album at Hansa Studio by the Wall in Berlin. And which... it was, yeah, I mean, so Bowie put a phone call into Michael Rother, didn't he? From yeah. Noy, because he's yeah. a massive fan of Noy as well. And they'd had a conversation about him coming to play on this new record, which would be Heroes. And, uh, and apparently Michael Rother was well up for it. Mm. But the phone call never happened, did it? A different phone call was made to New York. Yeah, it does make you wonder, doesn't it, what had happened if Michael uh, Rother ended up on that record instead. So at that point, Fripp had been on a retreat for a while in Sherbourne, and he'd been playing in uh, Peter Gabriel's live band. So he's in New York. He's at the uh, Waterside Plaza in New York where he gets the call from Eno and Bowie on the, on the line at the same time. Just saying, look, do you want to come over to uh, Berlin, play some rock and roll guitar for us? And he says, look, I haven't played for three years. I might not be great. Uh, and I'm quoting here. He says, uh, but if you're prepared to take a risk, this is what Fripp said to me, if you're prepared to take a risk, then so will I. And he said a first-class ticket on Lufthansa arrived shortly afterwards. And he wasn't used to this because EG, the management, he said to Fripp, look, you know your place, you're at the back of the plane, you don't get first-class. So this was like a really sort of big thing for a Fripp. big treat for yeah, him, right? absolutely. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, the, the first track that he recorded a guitar part for was Beauty and the Beast. Oh. And the, that's the first take that you hear on the record. Remarkable. And we've discussed before the, the nature of just dropping a guitarist, he did it to Earl Slick, and they, mm. I think they did it to Adrian Ballou as well. I yeah. think the same, but yeah, they just send him into a studio, don't give him much of a clue as to what's going on, the tempo, the key, and just say, Get on with it and, uh, and navigate your way around it. And there's probably nobody better equipped to do that than Robert Fripp, is it? And, and, and the, the guitar work on Heroes it is legendary, yeah, it's incredible. And of course, he did his whole thing, all his work on Heroes was done within three days, he said. At which point, Visconti said, Look, you've got a bit of a spare time now, uh, Robert, what are you going to do with yourself? And he's According to Visconti, uh, Fripp had said, well, I'm going to wave the Sword of Union tonight mm. round town. <laughs> right, and did he? Well, when I talked to him, I did kind of bring this up, pardon the phrase, but, you know, I did say to him, look, I, I had this quote from Visconti, and I, I don't mind, you know, if you're OK with me asking, 
did you wave the sword of union? He said, uh, he was laughing, obviously. I didn't in the end, but when I got home, I did. (laughs) More information. mind boggles, yeah. More information than you need, but then again, Bob, you did ask. Uh, And of course, so the next time that he plays with Bowie, scary monsters and super creeps. Yeah, and he's all over that. There's a great way of working insight into the way that Bowie worked at this point, because there were a couple of tunes that Fripp was kind of really struggling, well, not struggling with, but he didn't quite know what to do with himself. One of them being It's No Game, and Bowie had said to him, tell you what, why don't you just think of Richie Black? Blackmore, and he said, I knew what he meant. He didn't mean to play like Richie Blackmore, just think about him. Maybe don't play like (laughs) Richie Blackmore. No offence to Richie Blackmore, an amazing guitarist, that's all fine. Um, But uh, he should have probably had the oblique strategy cards, couldn't he? Because if he didn't know what to do, then just pull one of them out and say, you know, think of uh, the colours being the wrong shape, and then he'd be off. Yeah, well, maybe Bowie had taken a leaf out of the uh, oblique strategies, because he did say to him, Rips, have you got any suggestions for It's No Game? I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here. And Bowie said, well, whenever you're in doubt, just do nothing. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. F is for Feathers. Feathers being the trio that David Bowie headed up. This is after his first album had come out and after the buzz and the Conrads and all that stuff, but before Space Oddity, crucially. So you've got Bowie in there, you've got Hermione Farthingale, who was a dancer who'd met Bowie on the 31st of January 1968 when both were booked to appear on a BBC drama called The Pistol Shot, which I think is one of those things that's been white now, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah it doesn't uh. exist, I'm sure of that. Uh, also in the band was John Hutch Hutchinson, who was a bandmate of Bowie's from the buzz anyway. Uh, he'd gone off to live in Canada for a while. Mm. He eventually came back to the UK and he was working in Butlins at Filey, which I've mentioned oh. it was where I went wearing a Bowie hat some years later with Steve Hanley, so you know, cosmic, cosmic man. We should have, um, we should have done F for Filey, shouldn't we? We should have done F for Filey. We should have probably done an outside broadcast from oh. there next time. But uh, yeah, Butlin's Filey, and he was uh, in the resident band within uh, the bar, the Beachcomber. Oh, great. Okay, so Feathers themselves formed November 1968. So Bowie and Hermione Farthingale had been in the band Turquoise with a bloke called Tony Hill, and they sort of split up. Uh, more of a reinvention, I suppose, because uh, Hutch Hutchinson took over guitar playing from uh, Tony Hill. And there was a sort of name change to Feathers. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, Hutchinson, as we said, he knew Bowie from the buzz days, so Bowie kind of trusted him. He knew he'd kind of fit in well there. Yeah, and there's only three members of a band. If one of them goes, <laughs> you might as well change the name, just start mm. again. And they, they hadn't cracked it. They were doing the folk clubs and all that kind of stuff, yeah? Uh, but it was at this time, and uh, we have alluded to this before, mm. I mean, uh, several, several stages in Bowie's career, he changed his style, doesn't yes. he? We know that. Well, s- several doesn't cover it. No. But um, his hair was a big moment for him when yes. he when he was shown the locks uh, from Hunky Dory around mm. that period to go to Ziggy. Yeah. But at this point in time, he had the, the curly hair yes. uh, and all that look. But he had to get rid of it. He had a short back and sides, which was a bit of a culture shock for him, probably. But it was all because of the fact that he got a, a spot, a blink-and-you-miss-it spot, yeah. in the Leslie Thomas novels, uh, the, the film version of The Virgin Soldiers, which yeah. also starred Howell Bennett, uh, who starred in the film's Loot, and Percy. Yeah, we know that one, don't you we? You know Percy, do you? Uh, well, I do know that right, film, okay. certainly. So, as you say, it is a blink and you'll miss it. I think Bowie's in the scene at the bar, isn't he? And you just see him behind somebody uh, on the Virgin Soldiers. Isn't I've not seen it for decades. I thought there was a bit where he was shouting at the camera, oh, maybe with a gun. I'll right. need to go back and right. check it, really. But whatever he did, he was paid £40, which isn't too bad, you'd imagine, for a, you know, a blinking uh, appearance in 1968. Yeah, you would say that, but at the same time, I mean, turning up to a folk club with short back and sides, yeah. I mean, I suppose, it, again, if every 
every, if all the folkies had have said, wow, this is this is cosmic, man, mm. we're all going to have short back and sides, then he could have seen to be engineering a new part of the folk scene. And with but you. it didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. No, he was just in with short back and sides. Absolutely. So Feather's first gig, although there was still a misbuild as turquoise, was the 11th of November that year at the Country Club in Hampstead, which though the gig consisted of these dance sequences uh, by Hermione and a mixed media presentation, poetry, mime, and Bowie performing The Mask. So I did talk to uh, John Hutchinson uh, two, three years ago now, and he said it was, uh, he said, really, he said it was Hermione and David's idea. I was just brought in as a guitar player. He said it was a little bit uncomfortable for me as a rock and roll guitarist, and of course he had to switch the uh, tape machine on for Bowie to mime to, whatever was on there. So he was kind of a little bit out of his depth, I think. And he would be slightly uncomfortable as well, because of course Bowie and Hermione were lovers. Yes. So, I mean, you'd be the gooseberry, wouldn't you? Which you, you wouldn't necessarily want to be, but no. anyway, the 27th of November 1968, uh, in the studio with Tony Visconti to re-record a song previously recorded by Turquoise, which was Chingaling, which we all know, I think. I mean, I certainly do. Yeah. Uh, but with Hutch's vocals replacing Tony Hills. Now, I love this. There's a great story about uh, Tony Visconti, Davy Bowie and Hutch having a right old ding-dong because Visconti really wanted Hutch to sing like falsetto and he couldn't, he couldn't hit the notes. And so he'd be trying, failing, and then Tony Visconti would get narked and then Bowie would get narked with Tony Visconti. And it was all, I mean, it, it's one of those, if you could have had footage of it, it, ah. probably, would, it probably would have been hilarious. But uh, yeah, and also uh, Bomber Bob Harris ah. uh, from Radio 2 these days. He was in attendance that day. Ah, OK. So the 6th of December that year, they do a show at the Arts Lab on Drury Lane. They do a cover version of Strawberry Fields uh, in amongst the usual lot of mime and poetry and the rest of it. And Bowie at the same time is still doing solo gigs at the same time. So he's like, he's, you know, he's doing a lot of stuff here. It's like he's trying to cover everything he can possibly cover because by early 69, Bowie's time is taken up doing the uh, Love You Till Tuesday film, which also features three performances uh, by an uncredited Feathers. Yeah, so why uncredited, you have to think? But I mean, again, it was seen as another push uh, by management at that point mm. in time to just get Bowie to the next stage. So I suppose they didn't want to confuse it. And it was confusing enough already. Yeah. Doing solo gigs and, you know, I'm, I'm working on the song Space Oddity. Yeah. So there's loads going on typically for Bowie at that point in time. But the, the earth-shattering moment came in in the February of 1969 when Hermione, she moves out of the flat that she's sharing with David Bowie. And he's absolutely heartbroken. Yeah, absolutely. She had accepted a role in a film that came out a year later called Song of Norway. Intriguing cast here. Edward G. Robinson... Yeah. American legend Harry Seacombe and Robert Morley. Yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag, and it, and the film was a flop, wasn't it? I yeah, think I'm right in saying, you know. But uh, yeah, Bowie uh, spoke to Hutch then about going out as a duo. Mm. So and they they were working up Space Oddity at this they point were. in time. So yeah. with with Hutch on twelve string guitar and and Bowie famously on the stylophone. Yeah, I think Bowie's vision was they were sort of you know a British version of Simon and Garfunkel, which seems a a strange proposition from this point in time. It does. And also, uh, Bowie famously ended up in, a, in a, an advert for the Stylophone, didn't he? So, he did. I mean, uh, you know, maybe there was a business move afoot there as well in, in getting him to play it. But it, it worked. It earned him a few quid anyway. Uh, and, yeah, so Hermione, she'd scarpered, letter to Hermione, all that yeah. kind of stuff, which we'll cover uh, in the Space Oddity album, or David Bowie, if you like. Uh, just an, uh, a footnote, really. So Hermione Farthingale is related, I believe, to Neil Codlin of Suede. Oh, I didn't realise that. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Marianne Faithful, Herbie Flowers, Farewell Tour, Peter and Owen Frampton. 